Coming up, readings beyond the raffle and Theoryland approved conjecture. Deep dive into the spells and scrolls of nerd culture. Absorb Stormlight. Home sympathy. Arnas, Sayadar, and Sayadin. This is Phantology. You may have heard of us. fantasy book fans welcome back to another phantology episode this is your host steven along with my lifelong friend josh and today we have a very special guest one that we are very excited for uh the one the only brian mcclellan thank you so much for joining us yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it and uh, this episode is kind of a uh, a pump up uh whatever you want to call it episode for in the shadow of lightning did I get the, yeah, In the Shadow of Lightning. Yes, yes. the first book of The Glass Immortals, uh, which is coming out on June 21st, little more than a week, um, or actually less than a week as we record now, time flies in uh, 2022. And I just finished reading it and really, really liked it, Brian. So I'm excited to talk with you. This is not going to be spoilers for the book if you're listening for the purpose of wanting to be excited for the book or just wanting to hear um, us chat with Brian, like you're, you're not going to have things spoiled. Uh, we won't even do spoilers for Powder Mage. We're, we mostly just kind of want to talk with you and figure out how your brain ticks and uh, and what makes you such a good author. Oh, well, thank you. That's that's going off the high assumption that I'm a good author. Well, after after reading a few of your books, I think uh, I can say, uh, you know, you're one of my uh, favorite authors and I'm, I'm a big fantasy book fan. So that's probably not surprising. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I uh, They keep writing me checks, so I'll I'll take that. So uh, I guess rather than continue to take my word for uh, for your your writing prowess, I think a lot of people are interested in the Glass Immortals. This is your new series. Um, it's and it's been a minute since the last Brian McClellan since the Powder Mage wrapped up. So I think people just kind of want to hear like, what is this new series? What can they expect? How may it be different than uh, Powder Mage? And uh, yeah, let, let's go from there. Uh, so uh, Glass Immortals, uh, it takes place in a world of industrialized magic, um, which, you know, people coming from Powder Mage, they're not going to be super surprised by that because I've always loved playing with the kind of the themes of industrialization in magical yeah. worlds. Um, so it, it takes place in this world in which um, magic is made rather than innate. Um, and uh, and it's, it's made in the form of these little glass baubles um, a certain kind of sand is mined all over the world. And then in uh, glassworks, it's turned into these little baubles that you can wear on your person. And depending on the impurity put into that glass, uh, it depends on how it changes you, what part of you it accentuates. Um, so you have forge glass for strength and speed. You have wit glass for your mental acuity. Um, you, you've got days glass to get high. Like it's, there's a glass for everything. Um, and, uh, and this is a world that runs on this thing. And it's, the setting is going to be quite familiar to people from Powder Mage. It, it takes place in a world that, that equals roughly our 1800s, early 1800s, uh, Napoleonic era. Um, so it's still flintlock fantasy. Uh, and, um, and this world runs on God glass. Uh, and the, uh, the crux of everything is that one of our main characters is a failed prodigy. He, uh, he was raised as a brilliant kid. He was a governor at 14. He was a general at 20. And then everything came crashing down. Uh, this all happens in the prologue. So this is not spoilers. Um, everything came crashing down. His life is destroyed. He sends himself into self-exile. Uh, and, um, and then the book begins nine years later. He finds out that his mother has been murdered. He has to come home to the capital and take his place as head of his little tiny guild family uh, in the cutthroat world of this big empire and immediately finds out that the thing that got her killed is that the material to make God glass is running out. 
and the whole civilization is kind of teetering on the edge of uh, what we would kind of think of in a modern ter terms as an economic collapse. Um, and a lot of people have an idea that this is going to happen, but not the public. And it makes everything very complicated. And, uh, and so our, our hero, Demir, has to come home and take revenge for his mother's murder and try to figure out what's going on with the god glass. And that's the crux of the book. That was a, that was a great succinct explanation it's almost like you've done this before <laughs> <laughs> i my 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 uh, elevator pitch for this book depending on which podcast i go on is between 20 seconds and 20 minutes so i'm trying to find a happy medium <laughs> I, I think that was great and and let me just say when you talk about the prologue personally i think that this was one of the most memorable prologues i've read i'd say maybe the most memorable since like even the stormlight archive prologue it, it was, it immediately introduced um, Demir in, in a very compelling way. You know, you felt like you, you got this insight into his life that was going to shape him and pretty much every major decision that he was going to be making in the book. And so I really appreciated that because <clears throat> I feel like sometimes in books, you, you hear about something that happened and it's hard to con contextualize it or understand why it's influencing the characters to do, do certain things. But in this prologue, you're dropped right into this, what, kind of seems like at the beginning is going to be more of a political thing and then it turns into this this kind of horrific type setting and and it was it was really moving and then it as you know i progressed throughout the book it, it really goes to like that does influence him and does influence a lot of his actions so that's something i've really appreciated about the book well so the the unnecessary prologue is kind of a stereotype in epic fantasy um, and when I wrote that prologue, it was actually in one in like, I think it might have been the very first draft of the book. And this book went through several drafts. And, um, and I sent my editor that prologue. And I said, look, this is me kind of exploring some things. I don't know if I'm going to keep this or not. And, uh, and, and it's 6,000 words long. It's a long prologue. Mm -hmm. And she came back and said, no, this is, uh, this is staying in. I love this. And it's one of the only pieces from the first draft that remained in the book like almost completely whole um one of the first things i i wrote to introduce this world and uh and i i really love it and it's great i mean his arc demir's arc demir's maybe the main character although you do have more point of view characters so um and maybe we can talk about them a little bit but i think this prologue really helps to make his arc more impactful later on in the book and there's some nice twists and and reveals and uh, and the reader maybe doesn't realize everything uh, that actually happened in the prologue. So I think it, it really, you know, sets up the action right at the beginning and then is a driving force throughout. So I, I agree with your editor. I think uh, he made a good call there. So in terms of the magic system, it seems to be about on the same level, like maybe from this hard and soft spe spectrum that, you know, we kind of like to talk about. It seems like it's about in that same range as Powder Mage. Is that kind of how you're thinking about it? Were you you know, it seems like there's maybe some more abilities that are granted than than what Power Mage had. But what what are your what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to magic systems, you know, you everybody, you know, and it's the Brandon influence, right? Everybody talks about that sliding scale of how hard uh -huh. your magic system is, how soft it is, etc. Um, and you know, I definitely like I come kind of almost li literally from kind of the Brandon school of magic systems, and and I, I like going for a harder magic system, but I don't, I don't kind of, I don't go as hard as Brandon does. Um, I, I like to keep things a little bit softer, a little bit more pliable. Um, and uh, and with Godglass, I, I think that I can do that without cheating, because Godglass is something that it affects every single person a little bit differently. Um, and, and there are various powers of God glass. You can get, you can get really badly made God glass. And that's what people that are poor use basically. And it'll give them, you know, it'll, it'll let them carry around a sack of wheat basically, um, without a problem, but you, you've got the better stuff that the guild families have access to. Um, and then the very be best stuff that will literally kill you if you use it too much. 
Um, and so I've got this kind of within the world, there's this kind of sliding scale of how God glass works. And that allows me to keep the magic system a little spongier, I guess you'd say. Um, and I really like that. And, and it's kind of in, in a similar way that kind of powder mage was that I, I treat it as, as the magic is a little bit different for every person. Um, and I, I like doing that. I remember one of the things that Brandon talks about with magic that makes it work well is you need to have a way to make it run out or you need to have some kind of limitation to it. And it, it seems like the, you know, the resi residency in the glass is, is the way you're doing that. And I think, you know, we, we have mentioned Brandon a lot, but I think fans of Mistborn will feel pretty at home with this magic system. There's a lot of differences and nuances, but there, there are also some similarities, also kind of the setting, this like pre-industrial type setting um, as well as, you know, fans of your, your previous books are also going to like it. So, I mean, I, I think if you're listening this far and you're kind of on the fence, I, I would say I'd recommend it. And I think that, uh, you're going to feel very, uh, the, the glass of mortals is going to feel like just kind of your next jumping off into, uh, into the next McClellan adventure. I, um, I, I, I think the biggest compliment I got from Brandon for, for this book was, I got a text like late one night, um, you know, months and months ago, basically. And he basically said, this is, you know, I, I finished your book. I really liked it. I'll blurb it. Um, and, uh, and he said, uh, this is your Brandon, Brandonist book yet. Or he said something <laughs> like that, you know, the most uh, Brandon feeling. And you know, that, that made me feel nice. That's, that's a huge compliment coming from him. I like that. Um, but uh, but yeah, with you mentioned the you mentioned the limitations of magic, and that was something I wanted to have from the beginning. I, I kind of treat um, you mentioned resonance, and that's that is that is how they refer to the magic. What comes off of these little pieces of god glass? They essentially have have kind of micro vibrations. Um, they they kind of hum when they're touching you, uh, and they. Uh, and, and it puts off this resonance that I kind of treat like radiation um, in the world. And in very low doses, the kind of the lowest quality of God glass, you can wear it most of the time and you're not really going to be that affected. Um, but when you start kind of ratcheting up the quality and the resonance of the strength of it, um, it's going to start to affect you. Uh, you start by getting kind of this this sheen of glass rot scales. They just call it glass rot is this term for, for just the effects of, of God glass resonance. Um, and uh, so you get this sheen of kind of fish-like scales that is the same color of whatever God glass that you're using. Um, and those, if you're using it a little bit, those just wipe away, they fall off. They're, it's no big deal. Um, but if you abuse God glass, those can become very painful to remove and then they can become permanent. Um, and, and if you keep using it, you're gonna get cancers that will kill you. Uh, and so it's a kind of an escalating thing that is a known part of this world. And, and I, I feel like maybe, to me, I wanted it to feel modern in the same way Godglass does. It's, a, it's, this, it's this thing that people are using all the time uh, and and what effects will it have on you and society and health and things like that? How did you decide on glasses? There, uh, is there a glass blowing uh, hobby somewhere in your life, or did you did you look around and and try to find the the most unique way to apply magic? I've I've never done glass blowing. I've never I don't think I've ever even been to like a demonstration. But you know I've I, I've always been fascinated by it. You know from the earliest days of YouTube when you could find that kind of thing. I, I've always loved that. Um, I think it's really cool. Uh, and, um, and early on, like in the earliest kind of thoughts of what's my next series, I knew I wanted to do something with glass. I wasn't sure what. Um, I played with a lot of different ideas. And um, the, the one I got the furthest with was um, was mages who summoned demons and trapped them in glass and then used mm. the demons at different parts of, you know, different times. And, and I, it didn't quite vibe with my style of writing. And so I kind of moved on from that and, and I ended up with God glass. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was a bit of a process that started with 
knowing I wanted to use glass somehow and then kind of fiddling with it until it worked. So this is another setting very similar to Powder Mage. Like we said, Flintlock fantasy, military fantasy, a lot of, a lot of battles, a lot of, a lot of similarities to what we've seen before. Um, is that just a, a, a place that you've landed on that you really enjoy writing? And uh, I guess through the rest of your career, should we expect more of the same? Are there more things that you're wanting to experiment with eventually? I mean, it's, it's a place I'm comfortable at the moment. And, and I'm, I'm at that slightly precarious place of success with my writing career where, um, wh where I've done really well and I feel very confident, but I also am very aware that a big flop would totally ruin my career. And so there's, there's some strategy in that to say, I'm going to stick with what fans know me for at least for now. Um, and, you know, I've branched out a little bit already. I, I've got my self-published urban fantasy series that I am way behind on doing the third book in. Um, and, uh, and I've got a bunch of ideas that kind of ping around in my head. Um, I have one thing that, that about a year and a half ago got serious enough that I was sending drafts early, like, like sample chapters to my agent. And, uh, and I kind of, I didn't let go of it. I basically just ran out of time. I got the contract for this series and then I was, I needed to be writing it and working and the book was taking a lot of iterations. And so, so that kind of got pushed to the side. And um, I, I have found through trial and error that I'm way more effective as a writer if I focus on one thing at a time. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I like Flintlock fantasy. It's very fun. It's what fans know me for at the moment. And, uh, and so I'll stick with it, at least this trilogy. <laughs> we'll see how it goes forward. I, I don't really know. Um, I'm, I'm very open to, I'm very open to kind of doing whatever I'm comfortable with and what people are, you know, what publishers are willing to pay me for. Right. Mm. Um, I, I always, whenever I talk about this stuff, I always sound so creatively bankrupt. Um, <laughs> I, I love doing, I love writing in this time period. It's a very interesting time period in our own history that I think is just full of cool inspiration for, uh, political intrigue and world shaking events and changing technology and all of that stuff. And so I'm, I will probably write in this genre in some way or another for the rest of my life, but who knows what I'll fill in the other parts with. And I really like reading it too, because, you know, when, whenever there's magic, you're like, well, a guy with a gun could always just come in and, and blow away a wizard, right? Like that's kind of a <laughs> old trope about fantasy. You know, you get those kind of sketches like that. And so in both this and Power Mage, like, yeah, some big power, like some big um, magic users are taken down by guys with guns. So you kind of have to like get that balance of, you know, here's some amazing things you can do with magic. But at the same time, like a common foot, a foot soldier can just like, if they have a shot at the back of your head and they take it, then, you know, you could, you could be a goner. So I think it always reads, it, you know, it's a compelling read and a compelling setting. I'm surprised that, you know, we don't see a little used a little bit more than just like the kind of sword and sword and shield approach that most other, you know, epic fantasies take place in. Well, I think it's a, um, I think it as a time period and, and as a, as, as a technological period, it works with epic fantasy still because you don't get people with automatic weapons. You don't get kind mm. of, you don't totally destroy the kind of um, sense of wonder that you get from epic fantasy. Uh. Uh, you still have, uh, you still have a flintlock. It takes a long time to reload one of those. They're finicky. They're hard to maintain. Um, and, and you still have people dueling with small swords during this time period. You still have, you know, cavalry charges. You've still got a lot of things that can preserve the sense of wonder for epic fantasy while taking it into another kind of era. And, and it has become, it has become a genuine subgenre of epic fantasy, which is very cool to see. I kind of got in right at the forefront, but then, you know, there was guys like Django Wexler immediately after me. And, and since then it is, be, it, you see a lot more authors writing in it. You see a lot more books coming out that kind of, you know, tout a flintlock fantasy. And I, I think that's really rad. 
and yeah, like you say, it's right at the crux of a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's pre-information age. Obviously, there's no internet, internet that is going to really kind of spoil the story. There's still lots of room for creativity and you can go in so many different directions. Uh, I, I don't know, Josh, I maybe disagree a little bit. I feel like uh, a lot of epic fantasy is kind of moving into urban fantasy and there's, there's a bit of a crossing um, here. Yeah, I think you're right, but there are still a lot of series you know, that, that do focus on the pre-industrial revolution era, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the ones I've been reading recently, but even like, uh, no, I'm, no, I'm blanking. Evan Winters, Evan Winters series. I'm, I'm blanking. Um, the Rage of Dragons. Rage of Dragons. Series, like, that's yeah. definitely, you know, pre Flintlock. I don't know, like there's a lot, a lot of the major successes that have come out are back to pre-industrialization and pre, you know, pre-gunpowder days. But yeah, you're right. I do think we are creeping towards that as becoming the new standard. And some have started there and then moved into mm-hmm. the, this type of time period, like First Law and uh, like what Sanderson's doing in this four night. That, that's kind of fun too, because then you can see the same magic, like, oh, now technology has changed. And now how do we adapt the same type of world into a new period um, of, of technology, of uh, you know, a, new, a new setting, but still the same setting in a different world? Do, do, have you thought about doing something like that, Brian, moving uh, like an existing story into the future? Uh, there's there's a lot of challenges that come with that. <clears throat> and it's it's one of the reasons, one of the smaller reasons why I why I broke off from Powder Mage. Um, you know, like Powder Mage, I, I love the universe. I will probably go back to it at some point. I never discount that idea. Um, but I did six books and a bunch of novellas and, mm. and I was getting a bit burnt out with, you know, the same thing. I wanted to play with something new, but there was also this idea that if I came back to my publisher and I said, um, Hey, I want to do another trilogy in powder mage. Uh, I, there was this thing in the back of my head where I kind of knew that fans would expect the technology to advance in some way. And even though it doesn't do that really that often, I think it's happening more, but it doesn't do that that often in kind of standard medieval epic fantasy. Um, you kind of can have thousands of years of all the same tech. Um, and I, I, didn't, I don't really want to do that. I, I, maybe that <laughs> will change in the future. There may be a point at which I say, ah, oh, well, maybe let, let's play with how things how things change once you get, you know, telegrams and, and all this, you know, the changes of the kind of the age of steam and things like that. Um, but, but as, especially at the moment when I was finishing up book six of powder mage, I, I definitely was not in the mood for that. And, and if I go back to it, it, it may be that I just say, yeah, I'm going to kind of stick with the, what f- the feel of what it is right now. Um mm. But uh, but who knows, you know, if that's, you know, five or six years in the future, future Brian might have a totally different opinion on this than, than <laughs> present day Brian. Sounds like it sounds like those uh, darn fans are really holding you back and, and no. pushing you in, in creative directions you don't want to go. No, not at all. It's I mean, it's a lot of times, you know, when you're an author and you do this kind of especially when you're a full time author, you're in your own head all the time. And so you, you, you kind of, you make assumptions a lot. uh, You make assumptions oftentimes based on little evidence um, of what people expect from you. And, and I kind of, and I may have made that assumption of, you know, because Powder Mage, the whole point of it was a new era, a new technology that was changing the way that the world worked people would expect me to continue on that theme as I went forward. And eh, I don't know if I care to do that at the moment. So uh, one question from uh, discord uh, supporters on Phantology was uh, which character from your works do you identify with the most, uh, maybe your character that's easiest to write and then uh, which one is the hardest. And, and I guess we'll uh, free you up to say, you can uh, you can go back to Powder Mage. You can go to maybe we'll say anything um, out there, uh, and then maybe tell us a little bit about the Glass Immortals. You've talked about Demir, uh, but who are some of the other characters, and and how do they relate to you? I mean, every 
every you always put a tiny bit of yourself in every character because you have to be able to you kind of have to be able to dig into their brain and figure out how they work what makes them tick and things like that and you know even if they're even if they're like a horrible person they may have you know like they may have a hobby that you find interesting (laughs) you know there's you always put a little something um you know back with powder mage my self-insert character the closest thing I would come to a self-insert character um, would be either Mahali or Borbador. Um, Mahali, because he's this big jolly chef. And I like that. It's fun. <clears throat> I, I relate uh-huh. to that, you know, the love of food. Um, and, you know, and, and Bo, I always liked because he's quietly in the background. He's quietly competent. He hates himself a bit, but he's also kind of a, a, an unashamed hedonist um and you know there's a there's a little bit of myself in that uh but uh but i always just kind of liked his his casual ability to be um to be reliable and to try to do good things even when he's in bad situations and even when he's expected to be a horrible person um and i always liked that uh but yeah all the characters you put a little bit of yourself in um with the new series uh, with Glass Immortals, I, I don't think there's anyone that I would point at and say this is a self-insert character um, or even close to it, you know, um, mm. but uh, but I, I love all of them in different ways. Uh, you, you have to, um, you know, we, so we already talked a little bit about Demir. Um, Demir, the way I write my characters with these big epic fantasies, multiple point of views, is that I always have one character that is kind of the central pivot point. And everybody else kind of revolves around that character. And in book in the Powder Mage, uh, first Powder Mage series, it was um, it was Field Marshal Tomas. Uh, in the second one, it was Vlora. Uh, and in the uh, in in Glass Immortals, it's Demir. Uh, so Demir is kind of the central pivot point. Um, mm-hmm. And the other characters we meet, we meet um, Idrian Sapolki is a he's a breacher. He he's he is he is the military aspect of this book. Um, he's basically a walking tank. He wears this heavy armor made of god glass. Um, he has a uh, he has a natural resistance to glass rot, and so he is able to wear god glass for far longer than normal people without getting sick. It it will still make him sick eventually, but he's got a natural resistance, and so he is he's a military breacher. And he's basically the one who is sent to break the enemy line. You know, if you've got two formations firing their muskets at each other, he's the guy that goes across the middle and slams into them and just starts hacking away. Um, and uh, and I, Idrian is uh, he he's someone who I I like because he is both simple and not as simple as he seems. He he is very loyal to the battalion that he works with. Um, he, he works with this battalion of absolutely crazy combat engineers who are considered the elite of the elite. These are the guys that are sent into the dirtiest places to, you know, to break a siege, to, you know, throw grenades at the enemy. They're, they're nasty people, but all twisted and fun and really enjoyable to kind of play around with. Um, and Adrian is, he, he considers himself their protector. He, he almost like a father figure. He, you know, he's got his massive shield and he's got his massive sword. And he, he thinks of himself as the sword and shield of the iron horns, his battalion. Um, uh, but he also struggles with, uh, with madness that he's had since a child, since he was a child, uh, that afflicts him. Um, and, and throughout the course of the book is getting a little worse and a little worse. Uh, and for reasons that we won't spoil or talk about, uh, but, but he's one of those people that is both, both a kind of a, hard, a cold, hard killer, but also almost kind of pure in the way that he considers himself. He, he is mm. incorruptible. He, he, he knows that he kills people for a living but he also considers himself a protector. Um, and I like that kind of dichotomy when you're playing with somebody who's a soldier. And that's really one of the themes of the book, I, w- I would say, that I picked up on, at least, is uh, this balance between what has to be done, even if it's 
uh, kind of brutal or ugly versus, yeah, you know, how do I protect those that I love? And, and then how do I like live with myself as I walk this line? I, I thought it was really well done with him and, uh, and with Demir as well. And uh, probably with your other characters as well, now that I think about it, but I'd need a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think Tessa struggles with that much. Kizzy very much struggles with that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I'll, so I'll talk a little bit about Kizzy now. So Cassandra Vorsian, um, she is another character that uh, she's another one of the viewpoint characters. Um, Cassandra is a bastard from a major guild family. So Demir is the patriarch of a tiny guild family. A tiny meaning it's just him now that his mother is dead. Um, they used to be very powerful. The family dwindled over time. And now he's basically the final scion of this small guild family. Um, but the Vorsian are one of the five great guild families. Like the, like their guild family is as powerful as the king of another country. Um, and, uh, and Kizzy is a bastard from that family. And, uh, and her father is a really terrible person that is one of the five most powerful patriarchs in the, in the country, in the empire. And, uh, and she, because she's a bastard, she does not have all of the privileges that her full-blooded siblings have. Um, and she, she's basically been relegated to uh, the place of a favored enforcer. She's the one who is sent out to break legs when needed. Um, and sometimes slash throats and do other nasty things, but she, she doesn't, it's a, it's kind of, it's drudge work. She doesn't really like, but she kind of accepts her lot in life and realizes that, you know, it could be worse. You know, it could be a lot better if she wasn't a bastard, but you know, it could be a lot you know, worse as well. Um, but Kizzy is also one of Demir's childhood best friends. They played together as kids and, um, and, uh, and so she's one of the, she, he goes to her, he goes to her family and says, Hey, will you, will you rent me one of your enforcers? I want to borrow an enforcer. And they say, Oh yeah, that's, we've gotten, we've got thousands. We don't really care. That's fine. You can use Kizzy. And, uh, and so he goes to Kizzy and says, Hey, I'd really like to recruit you to help me with these problems I'm doing. And, um, and so she gets pulled in, in that way. Um, but I, I really like, her character because she she has to struggle with she doesn't have kind of the purity that Adrian does um she is far more cloak and dagger she you know her her weapon of choice is a stiletto you know she's she's a throat slasher and she uh and she struggles with the idea of loyalty and family and and being treated like garbage by her real family and not really and and wanting to be accepted by them but also they kind of are all horrible to her uh and so so it's it's a very complicated place she finds herself in and uh and i i like playing with that aspect of you know like you know that that whole idea of you know is blood thicker than water kind of thing and mm -hmm. and how she deals with that so, and, and she, I, Kizzy, funny enough, was the easiest character to write for me. And I, I don't know what that says about me, uh, yeah. but, uh, but Kizzy was by far the easiest character for me to write. She was very fun. She, every scene that I wrote of hers just kind of flew off the page for me. Um, mm. and, then there's, and then there's Tessa. Tessa is the final of our four point of view characters. <clears throat> and Tessa is a... Um, she is a silicier, which is basically a magical engineer. She's a glass engineer. Um, and she makes God glass for a living. And she is in some ways a counterpoint to Demir because we, we meet Demir in the prologue as somebody who is a genius. Uh, he's a political savant. He's just amazing at what he does. And, uh, and then we see his fall from grace, his mental breakdown, and then we see him in chapter one um, as somebody who's drifted away from kind of their calling, their purpose. Um, Tessa is a bit of a counterpoint for him because Tessa is, is only a little bit older than he was when he had his mental breakdown. And she is a, she is a genius of a silicier. She, she is the, um, the personal protege of one of the world's most foremost experts at making god glass and uh and 
she's she's kind of been groomed for this. She's been, you know, to to become this kind of um, to become an engineer. She knows all the ins and outs of the of this uh, of the, the of the magic technology and and how to make it and how it works. Um, and she also has a weird quirk in that she cannot benefit from God glass. Um, she has something in the world called sorcery aphasia, where she can, she can hear resonance, she can feel the resonance, which makes her very acutely, which makes her a very good psilocyr, but it also means that she can't benefit from God glass um, in any way. But she also can't, uh, she can't get the uh, the negative aspects of God glass either, which means that she can work with this material for hours on end with no problems. She can make the best quality without getting sick, um, which gives her a huge advantage as a psilocyr. And um, and so she she kind of has this. She has a journey of basically her world being upended by by the consequences of everything going on with the guild families. And mm. at the time, at the beginning, she has no idea about any of this. She is just suddenly dumped into this conflict. Um, and uh, and Demir uh, has to kind of figure out who she is. And, and I won't get too much further into the kind of the necessities of that, mm, but, yes. um, but the two of them, by by necessity need to find each other and uh and that's a big driving force in in the world and in in the in this book and i i liked using her as a counterpoint to demir because she she has not lost the things that made her amazing she and she also hasn't kind of lost her sense of maybe a sense of justice and sense of um of personhood and all those things that used to drive Demir, um, and I, and and it made it, you know, and so uh, so I'm able to kind of give Demir in some ways a mirror to look at, to say, oh my gosh, this is like somebody who is brilliant, but also mm. they didn't they didn't they didn't fail the way I did, and uh, <laughs> and to see how he deals with that, you know. One thing I really like about all these viewpoint characters is you really have a character that I feel like most people are going to be able to relate to, whether it's the military character or the, you know, the nerdy type character or the prince, you know, like there's, there's these characters that I think a lot of people can, can see themselves in or see aspects of themselves in and latch onto. And all of them are very compelling. You know, it doesn't, I feel like I get that classic thing where I'm like, oh no, I don't want to stop reading about this character. And then I get a page into the next chapter. And I'm like, oh, now I just want to keep reading about this character. And I'm upset every time that character's chapter ends, you know? And whenever you feel like, whenever I feel that happening to me, I realize that, okay, now I now I know that I'm really appreciating this book, you know, or I'm, I'm lost in it. And so I think that you've done, that you've kind of struck lightning with these four viewpoint characters that you have in, in this book, at least, because they're all very compelling. And, you know, I think I have my favorite, but I think that everybody will have a favorite. And I think that that's going to, that really comes through in, in their personalities and their strengths and their, the, the things that they struggle with those characters too. So who was your favorite? I'm curious. I really like uh, Tessa. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I'm going to say, I'm going to say the same. I, she was also my favorite. Oh, really? I'm, I'm really, I'm actually really glad to hear that um, because Tessa was the hardest character to write. For me mm. um i you know with powder mage i as a writer i what what i became good at over the course of writing powder mage was writing everything moving quickly and rarely stopping to explain things um in in long form you know obviously you you have to explain this epic fantasy world as you're digging into it but but i i always I always wanted to cut out this idea of, of whole chapters spent, you know, exploring a part of the world that doesn't have anything to do with the main plot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and Tessa, Tessa was me trying to say, okay, I want to slow down my own writing a little bit. And I want to spend some time with world building that isn't always necessarily like punching at moving the plot forward. Mm -hmm. 
And so Tessa being a magical engineer gave me a chance to kind of slow down a little bit and explore how God glass is made and give the, the reader a view into um, not just the political intrigue and the big military battles and things like that, but kind of this, the quiet, the quiet workshop where everything is made that drives this world. Um, and, and it was kind it was quite hard for me to get in that mindset, but I, it's very, I'm very glad to hear that it, that it worked <laughs> for both of you. So, I mean, so, we're both huge nerds, so I, so, I don't think that should surprise yeah, too much. A few things. One, I, I really like how I always felt like I was getting a, a look behind the curtain, like kind of seeing behind the scenes whenever I got a Tessa chapter. And two, these are just like high level things. Um, the narrative that uh, that she was put into at the very beginning of the story um, was compelling to me. So I felt like I wanted to see what was going to happen next, along with getting those behind the curtain things. And the third is I'm again, I haven't quite finished the book, but I started shipping her in my mind with another character <laughs> before they met. And so that's playing out right now. And so I'm, I'm uh, those three things together have really made mm. me latch on, latch on to her. Anyway, there, there, there's my high level overview. So Josh is spoiling that there may be romance in the book. I mean, there, there are interactions between characters that, um, that, yeah, that I, I was looking forward to seeing. So. <laughs> I will say, uh, as you talked about, Tessa, you, you, it sounded like one thing you really wanted to accomplish was a, a change of pace. And comparing this to Powder Mage, I think that is the one thing that I noticed that I think was the biggest improvement for me. Powder Mage was great because it was so breakneck, like you say, and everything was always happening so quickly and very much the same in terms of like, there's always something interesting going on, but I feel like there was more time to kind of breathe a little bit, but also have the plot moving along quickly enough where it always, it felt very compelling, but not too much. So like, it wasn't like events were just kind of contrived to say like, oh, we've got to keep the, keep the plot going. So someone's going to bust into the room right before they start to have this important conversation. Like there, there wasn't that type of thing that, that it didn't feel believable, but there were enough, there were always exciting events going on to where like Josh said, I wanted to keep the pages turning. I wanted to see the next, the next chapter from whatever character viewpoint it was. So I would say bravo on the pacing that that's my main thing uh, from this book that I thought you did better on. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I, I always hope that I'm improving in some way when I start a new book. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I'm very proud of this book. It, it Honestly, I, and I've mentioned this a few times before um, on other podcasts and things, but I, I put more work into In the Shadow of Lightning than I did on any two of the Powder Mage books. Mm. Um, it, it's a book that I, I wanted to have the world very concrete before I finished the end of book one. I, um, one of the big things that I always kind of regretted about Powder Mage, uh, about the beginning of Powder Mage, about Promise of Blood, was that Promise of Blood is very much my, it's my first book. I was like 24 when I wrote it, I think. And I, there is a lot of me throwing shit against the wall to see what sticks. And then I realized when I started writing Crimson Campaign, what I had done in retrospect <laughs> and realized that there was a lot of disorganization. There was a lot of things I hadn't codified very well. Um, and, and going forward, I kind of had to deal with that. And that was some, that was a bit of a frustration to kind of fiddle with over the course of the next two books. Um, and I, with, with uh, Glass Immortals, I, I wanted to avoid that. I wanted book one to be very concrete in my head. Uh, and, um, and I'm, so I, I'm, I'm hoping that that shows up on the page. Mm. So at the end of the book, there's a twist. And, and uh, as I was reading it, I realized things are going to be very different in the next couple books here. And so I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear that you have uh, sufficiently planned this out because I, I, I feel like uh, I can expect different things in the next two books. I mean, I, I guess I, I won't say anything further than that. Yeah, <laughs> probably shouldn't. But I don't think people would be surprised to hear that there's a twist at the end of at the end of the first book in a trilogy. There often is, <laughs> especially when you say it's the most. Sanderson said it's the most Brandon of any of your books yet. Uh -huh. I think I think that probably means that there's going to be a 
little bit of a twist coming. So we, uh, we're, we're fairly into our time here, but we do have several more questions. So maybe we can try to go through a few of these and knock them out. So, uh, so one question from uh, a friend who's also publishing her first book later this year, she wants to know about your writing process. Do you uh, have word count targets or do you just kind of write as you see fit and it, and it kind of comes together at some point? Oh, my, my writing process is terrible. I'm, I'm the, I'm the worst person to ask this. Um, I, uh, I've always been one of those people that, um, from early on in my career, when I went full time, I would do this thing where I would write for six months and then play video games for six months. (laughs) That is very unhealthy. I do not recommend it. Um, it is both mentally and physically very bad for you. Um, I, I've been over, actually, this is something I've been uh, trying to work on a lot over the last probably about 10 months or so, um, where I'm, where I'm writing every single weekday, I'm taking weekends off without thinking about the book. Um, uh, but Monday through Friday, I'm, I'm working. I, I kind of, I have the book either I'm either actively typing or I'm thinking I'm dedicating thinking time um, to figuring things out between, you know, 10 AM and about 8 PM, you know, I just, you know, kind of a long day and, and only some of that is actually writing. Um, but, uh, but weekdays I try to have work, I try to be my work time, uh, and then weekends take off and, and it's, it's, I'm having mixed results, you know, get back to me in a year (laughs) or two. Uh, but, but a process like that, I think, some people nail it right from the beginning of their career or even before their career starts. I've always struggled with process and, and it's only been recently that I'm really trying to get it nailed down and then I still struggle with it. So, yeah. So don't, don't beat yourself up if, if you're really kind of janky with your writing and your writing time. Um, if you can organize yourself to, to, to write in certain time periods, I mean, that's awesome. I'm, I really, it's better than I can do. I mean, I'm not my own boss. I'm supposed to work a job from nine to five and not work weekends. And uh, my schedule is also all over the place. So if you're your own boss and can get like an approximation of that, I'm, I'm very impressed. So, uh, okay, another follow-up question. Well, actually not a, not a follow-up question, but uh, you have a podcast. You are a competitor of mm-hmm. ours. Uh, how has that been going? What, uh, what inspired that? Uh, how much of your time does that take up? Just kind of Tell us about uh, the, uh, the, the whole situation over there. Yeah, so I've got a podcast that I started last, oh gosh, I, I think it's almost exactly a year now. I wasn't even mm-hmm. paying attention to like my, my anniversary, I guess. Um, so I started a podcast, it's called Page Break with Brian McClellan. And, um, and it was influenced, I listened to a lot of, uh, I really love British comedy. And I listened to a lot of um, uh, British podcasts. I listened to podcasts where, um, comedians will talk to other comedians about their lives, about craft, about everything that's involved in that sort of thing. And I've always really loved the idea of, um, of two people that are both professionals in a field discussing kind of inside baseball sort of stuff. Mm. And, um, and I, and I thought, well, that, that, that could be really fun to do as an author. And, uh, and, and I wanted to be a little wider. I, I always say creative professionals. Um, you know, 75% of my guests are authors. Um, but I've, you know, I've had YouTubers on. I've had, um, I've had actors on. I've had agents on. Um, I, but I really like the idea of, of that inside baseball chat. Um, and it's, it's not codified. I don't really even consider it a writing podcast in the way that a lot of these podcasts kind of do like, like kind of what you guys do, where you're really talking about craft and and digging into these things. I, I really like it as, as more of a people podcast where you're Mm -hmm. talking about your hobbies and, and being frustrated by sitting at home alone all day and not being able to meet up with your, your colleagues at conventions because of the pandemic, you know, like I like these little slices of, being a creative professional that a lot of times don't come to the forefront. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of the idea with page break and it's been fun. And I, I think I'm, uh, I think next week is my 45th episode. So, uh, 
So it, it's been a it's been a really good time. I'll I'll probably it's it's one of those things where like you know it's still costing me money to make it, but I'm oh, yeah. I'm enjoying <laughs> doing it. So I'll keep going for as long as I feel like it. Yeah, when we started podcasting, there's there's kind of that like rush of oh my gosh, I'm talking to another person and it's going to be recorded and put on the internet. And for some reason, this is this is very fun to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. It's you know there. Uh, there, there's days where I'll be like, oh, I've got an interview this afternoon. I don't want to do it. I'm, I just, I've got too much to do. I've got, I should be writing. And then the moment I start talking to them, I, I'm just, I forget all that. And I'm having a mm. blast. And then, you know, I'm pumped the rest of the day because I got to hang out with, you know, a friend or a colleague or somebody I'd never met before. And, uh, and I always end up loving it, even on the days when I'm feeling kind of crummy. <laughs> so this kind of leads into uh, another question which is how has the profession changed over the last few years? And, and part of it is very much inspired by the pandemic, I think, as, as you mentioned. And uh, it's becoming, I guess I'm, I'm kind of answering the question uh, myself as I ask it, but it seems like it's becoming more and more important to, uh, to put a face behind the name on the book and put a personality out there, which is what you're wanting to do with, you, with your podcast. So um, is there anything else you'd add to that? And uh, what do you see in the future as being really important for your success? Um, man, uh, that's hard to say because oftentimes you really can't tell what has changed until after it has changed. And and I feel mm -hmm. like we're still kind of, especially with COVID kind of still lingering and and people still, you know, hesitant about kind of getting back to conventions and doing the in-person things. Um you know, I, I, I did my first convention a couple of weeks ago uh, and had I went to France and then got COVID in France and had to miss oh. the convention. And, uh, and it, that sucked. Uh, but like, so, so it's hard to say, you know, um, I think I think that it is changing in that way of you get and, and you've felt this. I, I've felt this most of my career where you kind of have the, the writers who only want to write. And they are happy to have a publisher. They are happy to not have social media. Um, and they're, they're happy to write and put out a book occasionally. And that's their career. And some of them make great money and are able to do that. And other people do it as a hobby. That's fine. Um, but so you've always had that type. And then you've always had the type, uh, at least for the course of my career, which started in 2013. Um, you always also have the type of, oh, I'm gung-ho on social media. I'm really out there all the time. I've got regular newsletter. I've got all that stuff. And I, I feel like we're, we're, we're reaching a point where we're kind of cracking into a third type. Um, and you, you see this with actually going back to Brandon. Um, you see this with Brandon over the last year or two, where Brandon has, he has hired extra people uh, and he has really put a dedicated aspect on his social media, onto uh, especially YouTube, onto creating a bunch of regular content with his face and him mm -hmm. talking and him, you know, interacting with people, um, and uh, and and you're seeing that third type of author. I think you're going to see a lot more of that, you know, and I and I've got a little bit of that with Page Break. And um, with trying to be a little bit more uh, judicious about doing things that aren't just, you know, promo week and then I disappear for a year, right? Um, and uh, and so I, I think you'll I think you'll get a little bit more of that sort of thing. And it's yeah, that's that's kind of a mixed bag, right? Because some people mm. have the energy for it, and some people don't. You know, if you know, I. I've, I've got a virtual assistant who, who does, you know, five to 15 hours a week for me. And if I didn't have her helping me with lots of the little fiddly bits of kind of running things, I, I wouldn't be doing extra things because I don't have the energy for all those fiddly bits. Um, and, and that makes it quite difficult because you either have to be successful enough uh, to, to hire somebody to help you with things or you have to be one of those people that is super gung-ho and able to juggle lots of little things. Um, and, uh, and, and, and most people do not fall into those two categories. Uh, so I don't know, we'll see how that changes as things progress over the next five, 10 years. Um, and, uh, and I don't know, I don't know what it'll look like in terms of, 
you know, because we content creation is like the king these days, right? Everybody's creating content and authors are like the original content creators, but we do it in long form. Um, you know, it's something you, you put out a book or you know, maybe you're serialized. Maybe you are putting out something every week or every month, but it's, it tends to not have the immediacy of YouTube and Twitter and TikTok and things like that. Um, so we'll see how our, our industry deals with that kind of stuff going forward. So one more crystal ball question. What do you see in the fantasy landscape? Are any, any hot new trends that you can uh, cue us in on? Oh man, no, I'm not, I'm not keyed in enough. I, I, <laughs> I don't really read as much as I used to, uh, not nearly as much. Um, I tend to listen to more like podcasts, maybe some history books, things like that. Um, so I'm not keyed in very well. Um, so, so honestly, I, I can't help too much, too much with that kind of thing. So one, uh, one fan that is from Ohio wants to know, why did you move from, uh, from Cleveland to, were you, were you in Cleveland before? Yes. I'm, I, I was born in Cleveland. So why did you move from Cleveland to Utah? And, uh, because he feels, I think personally betrayed big. <laughs> big fan of yours and uh, and can we expect any other stories from other uh, urban type locations will you ever revisit ohio um well i mean i moved because we had lived near my family for eight years and it only seemed fair for us to move to live near my wife's family um and uh there's some irony there because they all then moved over the course of the last six years um but uh so uh, but in terms of uh, in terms of writing, um, I, I'm assuming they are referencing Valkyrie Collections, which is my little urban fantasy series that is mm. set in Cleveland, um, and uh, and it's it's about a collection agency that works for the supernatural um, uh, out of Cleveland, Ohio. And I've got two books in the series, and I have keep promising people that I'm doing more of them. Someday I actually will. Uh, it's it's very much on my list of things. But also, it very much does not make nearly as much money for me as my powder, my powder mage, or my uh, glass immortals does. You know, my epic fantasy. So it kind of has to be on the back burner while I'm paying my bills. Uh, but I very much intend to get back to that. Um, so we'll get to see Alec and Cle- in in Cleveland um, punching things uh, again uh, someday, hopefully. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if this will go out in time, but if there's any Clevelanders listening, I will be in Cleveland n- next weekend, not this weekend, but the next one for mm. a signing at the Mentor Barnes Noble. So what are, what are the dates in case uh, this goes out at a weird time? Oh gosh. Okay. Here, I'll actually pull up a calendar really quickly <laughs> and, uh, and throw them out. So I'm going to be um, in the, at the Utah, uh, the, uh, the Orem Barnes Noble in Utah. Um, on the 21st for my release. And then I will be at the uh, Tattered Cover in Denver on the, the 24th. And on the 25th, I'll be uh, the uh, Mentor Barnes Noble in, in Ohio. Uh, so so I've, got a, I've got a few places I'll get to visit. And then, uh, and then the following week on Wednesday, I'll be back uh, at the King's English in Utah. All right, Josh, you want to ask our last question? Yeah, <clears throat> so, so we know... We, we're fans of your podcast and we know that you usually like to ask what, what was the last meal that you had that blew you away. So if we uh, change it up and what's the last movie that you saw that blew you away? Oh my goodness. Last movie. Um, so please don't it, say Jurassic world. <laughs> it's even worse. So, so we actually, we went to our first movie in two and a half years. Um, just a couple nights ago, we went and saw, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, get the title mixed around but it's uh everything everywhere all the time is or is it all the all at once uh, i think it's all at all at once right all, all at once yeah i yes but holy crap that movie was bonkers um i i really liked it it, it was very funny very heart-wrenching very weird um but i i felt like in all the like in in a way that in a way that i really liked um so so that one got a big thumbs up from me um and uh uh yeah yeah I, I, like I, I was gonna try to explain it and I, you can't explain that movie that's why I've heard. Had, yeah I've, I've I've had a friend try to explain it and they ultimately arrived at the same conclusion was that you just need to go see it 
Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. I have it queued up on my because I think it came out so that you can pay 20 bucks and watch it at home, which I'm I'm cover, recovering from COVID, so I still have a long quarantine period, so I probably won't get be able to see it in theaters while it's still in theaters. So I'm I'm probably gonna have to shove off the 20 bucks to watch it at home. I mean, that, nowadays that's basically the that's basically the price of a movie ticket. So. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, there, there, there's an AMC that does five dollar Tuesdays by me, so I try and hit that up sometimes, but. Yeah, I, I will warn anyone that it is very weird and you will spend the first 20 minutes going, I thought this was supposed to be a comedy. And and then and then things will start to change. And and it's and then at some point you'll find yourself laughing hysterically at something ridiculous going on. And man, I really liked it, but I can't explain it. Nice. Well, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, this is really a treat for us. And and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, if you're watching it on the fence about the new series, like, you know, don't, don't be on the fence anymore. Go, go, go yeah. check it out. Can, can you give us, so the date that the book comes out and uh, anywhere you can pre-order the best place to get it? Uh, yeah, so it is out um, a uh, six days from our recording right now, which is June 21st. Um, and uh, you can get it ebook, audio, hardcover, um, if you'd like signed hardcovers, you can go to my website, uh, and get them directly from me. Mm. Um, you, uh, let's see anything else that we need to tell people. Uh, so it's, it's book one of glass Immortals. Uh, it's called in the shadow of lightning and, uh, yeah, it's a big honking fat epic fantasy. So, you know, come in, you know, prepared to read for a while. It's what 600 ish pages. If I remember right. Yeah, it's something there. like that. It's it's yeah. my longest book to date. I think it came in at 215,000 words. Um, and so for anybody who read Powder Mage and wants a comparison, um, Promise of Blood is 165. So so that's uh, it's it's a bit bigger and it, uh, nice nice fat. It, it reads fast though. You, you it's a page turner. Yeah, it does. Cool. Well, thanks again, Brian. Thanks, Brian, really appreciate Thank it. Thank you.